Chris Ventilikin joins us. The name of the new book is Ultra Processed People. Nice to meet you, sir. It's great to see you, John. I'm a guy who very much works on definition of terms. So we have to start with what is the definition of processed food? So there's processed food, which is has been around for more than a million years. The first time someone hacked a chunk of flesh off a mammoth, that was processing. Cooking is processing. Um, processing is ancient, and humans have to process their food. Uh, we're the only animals that can't survive without processing our food. So we have very short digestive tracts, tiny teeth, tiny jaws. So processing is fine. I think of it in terms of, the, if we think of, there are three categories of food. There's whole food, which would be milk. There's processed food, which would be cheese, and cheese is probably six to 8,000 years old at least. And then there's ultra-processed food. Now, ultra-processed food has a very long formal definition. That would be like plastic cheese, or we could process milk into butter. That would be processed. Margarine would be ultra-processed. So there's a long formal definition, uh, but it boils down to if it's wrapped in plastic, it's got an ingredient that you don't find in a typical domestic kitchen, then it's ultra-processed food. So if you can kind of run us through the history of when we started down the track of ultra processed food, I mean, it's a fairly modern phenomenon. It is. According to that definition, having an additive you don't find in your kitchen at home, like an artificial sweetener or an emulsifier, in fact, it's quite ancient. So in the, in the late 19th century, saccharin was extracted from coal tar. There were bread improvement agents. We had Crisco in the 1920s, margarine coming in in the 30s and 40s. But it was the 50s, 60s and 70s with women entering the labor force after World War II, the rise of home convenience machines like refrigerators, microwaves, the kind of airline TV dinner. That was when it started to really take over the North American diet, particularly the US diet. And in the UK, we're about 10 years behind. Canada's a few years behind. But really in the US, Canada and the States, we eat about 60% of our calories now from ultra-processed food and have for, for many decades. So, so a lot of it's obvious junk, you know, the donut fast food places and burger joints and fried chicken chains, all of that is ultra-processed. But almost all supermarket bread, almost all breakfast cereal, almost all snacks, almost all the fancy sandwiches that, that you know, busy business people will buy for lunch, uh, most ready meals, all of these things are ultra-processed too, and almost all condiments. You compare in your book uh, ultra-processed food to effectively tobacco, and and I think on, on a myriad of levels that in terms of, one, the danger it poses, but also in terms of sort of craven, commercial, almost, you know, I guess any Marxist economist would enjoy this analysis, but the idea that we can make good money, who cares if they die? That is the principle of the way our economic system works. I'm not a Marxist and I'm not an anti-capitalist. Uh, the book is not anti-capitalist. It proposes simply some regulation of an industry that behaves entirely normally. So most of our food is made by somewhere between five and 15 very large transnational corporations whose revenues are equivalent to the size of a medium-sized country like Venezuela or Croatia. They're very, very big, powerful companies. And they have obligations to their owners to generate not just profit, but growth. And this is, they're owned broadly by our pension funds, you know, so, you know, whether it's the, um, you know, the provincial pension fund in Canada or the you know, state pension fund or my doctor's pension fund in the UK. And so they have to produce this growth. And the only way they can do that is by making very, very cheap products that are 
quasi-addictive. So I think there are two comparisons with tobacco that I really want to be nuanced about. One is that it's the companies we want to compare to the tobacco companies. We have to think about them in terms of how we regulate them. We should we should look to them to be treated like tobacco companies. One of the most important effects of that is doctors and scientists have to stop taking their money. No respecting asthma or lung cancer doctor or scientist takes any money from Philip Morris or British American Tobacco. And nutritional scientists and gastroenterologists and pediatricians should no more take money from the major companies that make our food. The food itself, there is very good evidence it's addictive. And so listeners will recognize about 50 to 60 percent of people listening will recognize that they are really struggling to stop eating this food in general and to stop eating particular products. And uh, they will recognize an addicted relationship. And my book has a fairly simple invitation to people that we're all part of an experiment we didn't volunteer for. New molecules are tried on us and new combinations of molecules the whole time. We take the risk in the experiment. The companies privatize the benefit. They take the money. And my proposal to the reader is to eat the food along with the book while you read, do the experiment, and start really thinking about what you eat. Chew it around in your mouth, eat it slowly, read the packet, look at the emulsifier lists, look at the flavorings, the preservatives, and inspect the food. Because this is the category of food that we inspect least when we eat it. You know, it just it just passes our lips and enters our stomach, and there's there's no consideration of it at all. You're probably having a busy day, so maybe you don't know that um, a, a publication you're probably familiar with, the National Post in Canada, for which, for sake of full disclosure, mm. I wrote for 15 years, uh, they celebrate something called Junk Science Week, and you and your book are the target of today's column by my old friend Terence Corcoran, who insists that there's absolutely no scientific research that backs up this book. That's a remarkable claim. I'd love to be sent that article. I mean, I'm... Uh... Okay, uh, let's see. How do I do this without puffing and boasting? There are over 400 references in the book. I mean, the World Health Organization recognizes uh, ultra-processed food as a health risk. The United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization does. Um, Groups at Oxford, Harvard, Cambridge, uh, McGill, um, Sao Paulo, the French government, the Canadian government. You know, this is quite widely recognized. There is some pushback. Almost we've done an analysis of um, who objects to this science, and it is entirely the food industry, because the idea that ultra-processed food is a threat to human health is an existential threat to the companies that rely on it for money. I mean, food companies don't make any money from selling real food. You cannot make financial growth from broccoli or meat or milk or butter. You know, you can make a little bit of profit, but the big growth is in intellectual property, addictive substances. So, um, yeah, I'd love to see that article. I mean, just for the record as well, I have a medical degree from Oxford, a PhD from UCL. I'm an associate professor at UCL, one of the best universities in the country. I'm an expert advisor to the World Health Organization. I have multiple peer-reviewed publications in journals like The Lancet and the British Medical Journal. I mean, I don't know. I think I'm a fairly serious person. I'm also a BBC broadcaster. Okay. Does that, uh, does that stack up or do you like... No, totally. I mean, you know, I said I worked for the National Post, but the reason I got flushed out was I was the House Liberal. Um, maybe you've already answered this question then. Why do you think there is always such a, a pushback on, you know, the research, for example, that you're talking about here? Or when... Uh, Michelle Obama tried to get school kids to eat better. That became, you're going to make us eat crickets. 
I mean, there is this sort of hysterical libertarian uh, panic over anything that suggests, you know, like corporate food or, you know, and other issues, climate change. A lot of these people are on the same page. I think some of that anxiety I'm very sympathetic to. I don't want anyone mandating what I eat, and I don't propose that anyone should. I have very little interest in giving advice to people. There's almost no advice in my book at all. What there is is information, and I am I do believe in, in freedom and, and rights and the right to good information and freedom from a certain amount of marketing. So I'm sympathetic to some of those arguments. I would like junk food to be available. I eat junk food. My kids eat junk food. I do think that the food industry are extremely skillful at creating a narrative around their critics that we in some way want to nanny people, ban things, end fun. We want women back in the kitchen. These are quite well-rehearsed arguments. I actually think the public are, we have lots of evidence, the public are really on board with this. People have had many decades of weight gain, despite all the things they've tried to do. They've tried exercise, and it turns out all the information on exercise as a weight loss method was funded by coca-cola they've tried low fat they've tried low carb and i think people are connecting with my book in the uk particularly it's it's doing well not because it's an amazing work of literature but because people are buying into the idea that food made by these transnational companies to be addictive is maybe slightly different from food you make in your kitchen you make ice cream at home it's not the same as an ice cream full of emulsifiers and guar gum and xanthan gum that you buy at the supermarket store. So it's not a very complicated hypothesis. One of the real problems in Canada and elsewhere is that this is the only available affordable food for people. I want to get you back to your patients, but the one thing we haven't touched on yet in this conversation is that you actually went on an ultra-processed food diet for a month in order to see what it was going to do. It's kind of like the guy who ate at McDonald's every day for a month. It was like supersized me, except I was doing it as part of a formal scientific experiment. It was part, it was, I was the pilot subject in a big research study we're now running to see if we could get pilot data. And I wasn't force feeding myself. I got 80% of my calories from ultra processed food, a very typical diet for a Canadian teenager, very normal diet for a Canadian adult, in fact. Three things happened. I gained a huge amount of weight, so much weight that my body weight would have doubled if I'd kept it up for a year. The second thing is that my hormone response to a meal really changed. So my hunger hormones remained sky high at the end of a standard meal. And then we did a brain scan and saw very significant changes in the connections between the habit forming parts of my brain at the back and the reward addiction centers in the middle. So, um, but there was a thing that happened to me during the experiment, talking to a scientist in Brazil about the way we were collecting data, Fernanda Rauber. She kept referring to the food, not as food, but as an industrially produced edible substance. And she refused to call it food. It was almost annoying when she was doing it. And I hung up the phone and I went to eat a, a dinner of, you know, takeaway fried chicken and I couldn't do it. She had disgusted me. And that is sort of the gift I want to give the reader of the book is um, to cure them of an addiction if they feel they have it and they are able to afford to buy other food. Um, and a lot of people are nicely sort of writing to me going, oh, this is weird. I can't eat this stuff anymore because it doesn't stand up to scrutiny. And anyone can do this. I mean, anyone listening now, get a packet out of the cupboard, get your chips, get your chocolate bar, look at the soy lecithin in the chocolate bar, look at the tartaric acid esters of mono and diglycerides of fatty acids in your bread, look at the ribonucleotide flavor enhancers in your crunchy chips. And 
really inspect what they taste like, what they feel like, chew the food up. It becomes disgusting very easily. Thank you very much for this. It's such a pleasure. It's very nice. These are great questions. I'm particularly, I'm, I'm, you know what? I'm really excited the National Post have taken this on. That, that's how I know I'm right. 